Thus far in Hebrews, we've been uh, looking at the Lord Jesus Christ, saying He is better. He is better than all that preceded Him. He has been described as the final word, the heir of all things, the, the radiance of the glory of God, the Davidic king, the sustainer, the governor of all. Now as the representative man who is crowned with glory and honor. In Hebrews chapter 2 verses 10 to 13, the Lord Jesus is further described as the believer's elder brother. As the believer's forerunner. Archegos is the Greek word. We're going to look at that and explore that a little bit in just a few moments. The forerunner, the pioneer of our salvation. In verse 10, Christ is the one who by his death brings many sons to glory. In verse 11, the one who sanctifies us. In verses 12 to 13, Christ, the elder brother, who's, who's not ashamed to call us his brothers, his siblings, right? And we're going to look at this. This morning, I'd like to look at this text a little further by looking at just two things, very briefly. Jesus as our elder brother and Jesus as our forerunner. Jesus as our elder brother and Jesus as our forerunner, as our pioneer, as our forerunner, as our author, as the source, as the founder of our salvation. So let's look first at this first point, Jesus as our elder brother. Now, for some of us, if we're honest, the thought of having an elder brother is not an encouraging or a welcomed thought, right? We have remembrance of being teased. I was the, the, the second, the third of three brothers, right? Uh, always being teased, always having someone else beside mom and dad telling us, what to do is to have an elder brother. But the Lord Jesus Christ is unlike that, right? He's unlike any other elder brother. He's the best of elder brothers. Right? He loves his siblings with a sacrificial love. And in the Roman world, an elder brother was the, was the sole heir of a father's inheritance, an estate. And Jesus, likewise, is the, is the sole heir of the father's estate. And we, by faith in him are now joint heirs, right? We are sons in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, under his rule and reign. We're co-heirs, and in him we gain adoption by grace. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.5, God predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ our Lord. And hence, Paul says in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the spirit of adoption, right? That we might cry, Abba, Father. That in Jesus Christ, God has so loved us, that he has so loved the world, right? That he gave his son, that not only would we be made servants of the king, not only would we be welcomed as friends, who were at one time enemies, but now we're adopted sons, right? We're adopted, that he so loved the world, that he gave Jesus Christ, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish. You see, beloved, in Christ, God has reconciled us, his enemies, and brought us into his family. We're told in Ephesians that he might create in himself one new man, making peace through his blood, right? So all of us, together in union with Jesus Christ, no matter our diversification, no matter our race or ethnicities or socioeconomic pedigrees or background, we're all one in Jesus Christ. Now, we still maintain those distinctions, right, in the union with Jesus Christ, but they're no longer the ultimate distinctions, right? What's ultimate now is our union with Jesus Christ. The harmony and the oneness that we have in the body of Christ defines us. 
That's why Paul says in Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise. You see, with Jesus as our elder brother, we are God's children. And in verse 10, we're told that with Christ as our elder brother, God is bringing many sons to glory. And what is this glory and splendor we're being brought to? Well, that glory and splendor that Paul, rather that the Psalm 8 spoke of, that was lost and now has been found in Jesus Christ. He brings us to the destiny. He brings us to the final destination that was to be ours in Adam, lost but now restored in Christ. And there's two things I want us to notice here as we think about this, this concept of adoption. First, there's a brotherhood that we've been adopted into. Again, we saw last week God originally created humanity, male and female, in glory of his own image, but that image was shattered by the disobedience of Adam. But in Christ, the last Adam, that image is now being restored. That's why Paul will say in Romans 8.29 that God chose us in Christ to be conformed to the very image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, right? He's the firstborn. He's preeminent. He's the God-man. He's unique. And yet we, by faith, have been brought into the family. We've been adopted into the beloved, into our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only have we been adopted, we're being progressively sanctified. We're beginning to take on progressively one degree of glory to the next, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 4, the image of God. We're being transformed. We're being sanctified progressively. We're being changed by God. That's what he tells us here in chapter 2, verse 11 of Hebrews. For he, Jesus, the Son, who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, the adopted children, all have one source, right? And all of us now are being changed from one degree of glory to the next. We're being made holy, right? Each family has distinguishing characteristics. Sometimes in a particular family, it's, it's looks, right? They have the same look. They have the same ears, right? I'm amazed. Ears are telling uh, in identifying people in family groups, the way they, just the way they are. And it's interesting to see that. I don't know. It's a fetish I have. I don't know. I don't, it's kind of strange. But anyway, some of us, it could be intellect or personality. That family just has a similar personality. There's something about that family that's characteristic of them, right, that just marks them off. That's, oh, that's a Bufa family. That's a Bullock family. That's a Jones family. That's a preacher family, right? There's just certain characteristics. Perhaps it's, again, it could be their intellect. But in God's family, what's the distinguishing characteristic? What is it? It's holiness, right? It's holiness. Ephesians 1.4, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and we should be blameless before him. The children of God the family of God is marked by holiness, that we're a holy people, right? We love holy things. We love what God loves, and we hate what God hates, right? And as Christians and as those adopted and born from above, we're called to resemble our father and our elder brother. And we're told in the second half of verse 11, that is why he, Christ, is not ashamed to call us brothers, because we resemble him, and we're being made more and more to resemble him each and every day through the word of God, through the means of grace. Well, let's look at the second description. Not only Christ as the elder brother, but Christ as our forerunner, as our pioneer, right? This is some ways even more striking than having Christ as our elder brother. Verse 10 says, 
He speaks of Jesus, notice what he says there, as the founder of our salvation. The founder of our salvation. Now, this word here is huge. It's archegos, as I mentioned. It can also be translated captain, forerunner, author, champion, or even pioneer. And I think that word pioneer is interesting here because if we think about the word pioneer, right, we think about Lewis and Clark perhaps, right, who... who uh, opened the way to the Northwest Passage in the United States, right? And that's the picture, I think, that the author wants us to see, that Christ is the pioneer. He's the captain of our salvation. He's the one who opens the way for us to enter into this destiny of glory and honor that God intended for us. Listen to F.F. Bruce as he describes this concept of Christ as the archegos, Christ as pioneer, Christ as captain of our salvation. He says, Jesus is the Savior who blazed the trail of salvation along which God's many sons could be brought to glory. Man created by God for his glory was prevented by sin from attaining glory until the Son of Man came and opened up by his death a new way by which humanity might reach the goal for which it was made. Our forerunner, our captain, our archegos, has now entered into the presence of God to secure our entry. He's gone before us as the captain of our salvation, as the pioneer of our salvation, the commander, right? It's this forerunner, the Lord Jesus Christ, our faithful elder brother who leads us into the promised land of salvation, into eternal life. That is through his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, we're brought into this glory that God has opened for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. He who is the way, the truth, and the life has secured so great a salvation for us. Well, what was the barrier? What was the, the, the passage that Jesus had to track? What, what did he have to do? What did he open up as this pioneer or captain through which he had to go through that we might become the children of God? Well, he had to go through sin. He had to go through death itself, right? For the wages of sin is death. And sin was the barrier over which Christ had to overcome. For you see, the soul that sins must die. Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto men once to die and then face the judgment. Christ, through his active and passive obedience, had to go through sin and the deserts of sin. He had to go through the justice of God, the wrath of God, to secure this great salvation for us, to bring us into this place of glory, this destiny that God had envisioned for us before time began. He did this by becoming a curse for us. And you see, the blood of bulls and goats in the Old Covenant only foreshadowed the blood that would be required for sin. You see, perfect blood of a perfect Adam was required because Adam had sinned, and all we in Adam sinned, right? All his posterity so we needed a, le- a second Adam, a faithful Adam, who through perfect obedience would secure so great a salvation as our archegos, right? At the cross that mercy and righteousness would kiss. At the cross, justice was satisfied and God's holy wrath was turned aside. At the cross, our sins were many, but his mercy was more. You see, friends, the way to God's presence had been closed off in the garden, right? When Adam and Eve sinned there in chapter 3, right, partaking of the fruit that had been forbidden, what did God do? God comes in judgment. God comes with promise. But then what does he do? He exiles 
Adam and Eve outside the garden. At the eastern gate, what does he do? He puts up a, a cherubim that guards the entrance to the gate into the garden. The sword going back and forth, representing the judgment that was required. So the only way Adam and Eve and Adam and his descendants could once again return to the garden was only if the sword of judgment would fall. And that's exactly what happened at the cross of Christ. That God has opened the way for all who would come without money, without cost, right? Not through the wilderness of a mountain range did the pioneer travel, but the Son of God traveled through the wilderness of sin and wrath that the Son of God had to traverse to secure this great salvation for us. Romans 3.25 and 26 captures it beautifully. God put forth Christ, put him forward as a propitiation, right? As a satisfaction for the wrath of God that was against us. The justice of God was against us, right? We had sinned, and the wages of sin is death. But God put forward his own son by the propitiation of his blood to be received by faith. That is to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of those who have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, this is exactly what the author of Hebrews is getting at when he says that Christ was made perfect through suffering. Now, when we hear this, you hear this and you think to yourself, well, I thought Christ was already perfect. He's fully God. He's fully man. There are two natures in one person. He's without blemish. He's the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He's perfect. So how can he be the perfect forerunner and yet still be required to be made perfect? Well, let me explain it this way. He's not talking about a moral imperfection in Christ that needs to be corrected, but rather he's speaking of Christ being perfected in his office as mediator, as the last Adam. He's perfected in his vocation as the Son of God, Son of Man, as the high priest who would secure this great salvation. The word perfect is used in the Old Testament in reference to the consecration of priests into the priesthood to indicate that they were qualified for office. You see, F.F. Bruce puts it this way. Marvelously, he says, God qualified Jesus to come before him in his priestly action. He perfected him as a priest of his people through suffering, which permitted him to accomplish his redemptive mission. He came perfect in that he submitted himself as the God-man to become our faithful high priest under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might become the children of God. And you see, here the preacher is beginning to broach this great theme of the high priest that I'll go on to develop at length in the coming chapters. But here in chapter 2, verse 10, we're told that all of this, all of this, Christ being made perfect through suffering, Christ being our pioneer, Christ our being our elder brother. Notice what he says there. It was fitting, meaning it was appropriate. Just like a, a bolt, you go to Lowe's and you get a bolt and you get a, 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 a nut. You got to get them, they correspond, right? The nut goes onto the bolt perfectly. It was fitting. It was fitting that the God who ordains all things and for whom all things exist, did it this way. You see, there was no other way to bring you to glory. There was no other way 
for God to secure your adoption than through Jesus Christ entering our humanity, assuming our humanity, becoming this last Adam who secures this great salvation. It's totally in a keeping with his holiness, totally in keeping with his absolute justice and everlasting mercy. But there are many, are there not, in the world today and even within the church today who would disagree. Not only do they say it was not fitting, but they also call the idea of God who sacrifices his son repulsive. There are people in churches right now who would call what I'm preaching cosmic child abuse. That it's beneath God that God would enter into the human race as the God-man and would undergo the, the vile and torturous and horrid death of a cross. It's beneath God to do so. But you see, God is small in their thinking, and sin is inconsequential in their thinking. But there's nothing new here, for Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Verse 22 and 23 of that same chapter in 1 Corinthians. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ and Him crucified, a stumbling block to the Jew and folly to the Gentiles. You see, since the very inception of the gospel, it's always been folly. It's always been a stumbling stone, the cross and the need for the cross. So whether in the first century or the 21st century, such a view as the one that I've laid out that many hold in the church, unfortunately, today, falls far, far short in recognizing the holiness and love of God as it's seen in the cross. Augustine would say about the cross, the cross was Christ's pulpit from which he preached the love of God to the world. It is in the cross where God displayed the length he was willing to go to secure your salvation. John Murray says this, What love for men that the Father should execute upon his own Son the full toil of holy wrath so that we should never taste it. You see, he endured hell for you on the cross that you might never experience it. It's been extinguished. It's finished. It's over. There's no condemnation for you who are now or in Christ Jesus. But if you're not in Christ, you're condemned already. But in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. This is love, 1 John 4.10 says. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice, to be a, to be a sacrifice that restores us back to God, to, to make us at one with God through his active and faithful and passive obedience. This is why Jesus, we're told, is not ashamed to call us brothers He's not ashamed because our salvation brings glory to his Father and our Father. He's not ashamed because he assumed our humanity that we might see and even one day share in his glory as his siblings. We're the siblings of Jesus Christ. He's our elder brother who secured this great salvation. And then he concludes there in verses 12 to 13 by citing the Old Testament to prove his point, showing the solidarity that the Son of God has with his brothers and sisters, right? with his sinful, struggling siblings. He's not ashamed of his siblings, right? Are you ashamed of Christ, your elder brother? He's not ashamed of you, right? He loves you. He gave himself for you. He rejoices over us with singing. He quotes from Psalm 22, the first half, as I mentioned, 
were on the lips of Jesus when he endured the wrath. But here he quotes the, the second half of the psalm, particularly verse 22 of Psalm 22, which begins this song of praise and thanksgiving. Having completed his sufferings, he calls upon his brothers to join him in congregational singing and worship. He says, I will tell of your name among my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praises. You see, he's always the attended guest here on the Lord's Day. He comes and he sings over us. He sings his praise over us as the family of God. Isn't that a marvelous thought to think that the Son of God, the faithful Adam, comes as our elder brother, this forerunner, this archegos, who's secured so great a salvation for us, comes and he, he sings the praises of God over us. He calls us to lift up our heads, to look upon him with joy and thanksgiving. You see, beloved. And notice it goes on, right? The solidarity is confirmed in verse, verse 13. He quotes from Isaiah eight seventeen to 18. Again, he says, I put my trust in him, and again, I and the children God has given me. Again, the faithful words of Isaiah spoken in the midst of adversity. Isaiah there in the 8th century was facing this great enemy called Syria, this military might, but yet he will trust God in the face of great adversity, in the face of great circumstance. He trusts God. And now these very words that Isaiah spoke are now found on the lips of the Son of God, this archegos who goes before us as our elder brother, right, who trusted his father even in the face of the greatest threat of all, death itself, who secured our salvation by his grace. And this victory that he has secured is now shared with us. You see, he lovingly shares it with his brothers and sisters, all those whom God has given him. One commentator had it this way. It was a beautiful picture of the Son of God coming and put his arms around us as his siblings, coming and saying, sing to the Father, sing to the Spirit, sing to the Son, the glories do his name. You see, this is what our God has done in Jesus Christ, this faithful Adam, this archegos who's gone before us, our elder brother. Let's pray and ask this blessing. Our Father, we pray and ask your blessing on this, your word. We will pray that the great truths of Jesus Christ as our elder brother would shape our hearts and shape our affections in the coming week. We pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see him who is now reigning, crowned with glory and honor in the midst of a dark, dark age and a dark time and an evil generation when there's wickedness all around us, even as we anticipate knowing no matter what this week will bring, Jesus Christ now reigns in heaven and we reign in him. And one day it will be made manifest for all to see when you will raise our bodies from the dead and you will clothe us with immortality and we will see Jesus Christ and be made like him and brought into the new heavens and new earth and all the groaning of the creation will be over and the groaning of the spirit will be over and the groaning of the believer in union with Jesus Christ will be over for tears will be no more for you will wipe them from our eyes and we will see you Lord Jesus and we will be forever with you when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. We pray that you'd give us faith. We pray again for the churches in Nashville and throughout the PCA that are mourning this day over the great tragedy that's befallen us. We pray and ask that you give us faith to see him who now reigns in heaven in the midst of the darkness. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.